This is a Federal News Network podcast. Nearly half of the most popular federal websites are difficult to navigate for people with disabilities. That's according to research by the Information Technology and Innovation Fund, ITIF. For details, Federal News Network's Jonathan Tercasio spoke with report authors Ashley Johnson and Daniel Castro. We've looked at federal websites over a number of years, and what we've found is that they often don't perform up to standards of what people expect, and in particular, one area where they've often lagged is around accessibility for people with disabilities. So they're not designed according to uh, best practices and they're not designed to comply with some of the laws around accessibility. So what we decided to do was look at the most popular websites, the ones that you know the average Americans are likely to be going to, and looking at the most popular web pages and test them to see if they comply with these accessibility guidelines. And Ashley, maybe you can talk about some of these results. Sure. What we found in our results was pretty similar to what ITIF has found in previous accessibility assessments of government websites, which is that there's a very wide variety. Some agencies' websites are very accessible with no to very few errors or potential boundaries to accessibility, and some are much less accessible. And in terms of these lowest performing websites, some of them included the the Census Bureau, even the Marines. Why exactly did they perform so poorly and, and how drastic of changes do they need to make to get up to par? So like I mentioned, none of them I don't think would be completely impossible for most users with disabilities to navigate. Some would just be a lot more difficult and confusing than others. So I would say where some of these websites mostly went wrong was perhaps not testing how easy it was to navigate their websites for users that can't see a screen or for users that can't see the full range of colors. And so contrast becomes a problem. Just doing these in-person tests of can various people with different disabilities actually navigate these websites and how intuitive is that process? The DHS in particular, it was noted that they performed so well because they had an office dedicated explicitly to accessible systems and technology. Were there any other agencies that had similar offices as the DHS, and how did they perform on the test? And how instrumental do you think these kind of offices are in upholding Section 508 standards? So yeah, the DHS does have its office dedicated to accessibility. Within that office, it has its trusted tester program which is involved in testing the accessibility of its websites, sort of similar to how we uh, tested the accessibility of different websites. And in talking to disability advocates and accessibility experts, some of them mentioned to me that this is actually a pretty good process and the sort of thing that they would like to see implemented across the board. And there aren't that I know of any other examples of that at the federal agency level. So the example of how that turns out is of the various DHS agencies only two of them didn't pass uh, accessibility tests for three most popular pages that we tested. So DHS, USCIS, US CERT, CBP, FEMA, and TSA all passed all three tests for their most popular pages. And then CISA failed one test and ICE failed all three tests. So those are the only two examples of DHS agencies that didn't pass all three accessibility tests. And then compare that to Another executive agency, and this is the case for most of the other executive agencies, but just to give an example, the DOJ had a lot less consistent results. Uh, It had the FBI, which passed all three tests, 
the ATF failed one of the tests, the DEA failed one of the tests, and the Bureau of Justice Statistics failed two of the tests. So more of a spread out results sort of, sort of across the board. And this is what we saw from most of the other executive agencies. And this is Daniel. I'll just add one thing that I think is interesting and kind of innovative about the DHS program is that this office that they've created for accessible systems and technology sits between both the Office of Civil Rights and Civil Liberties and then the CIO's office. So they're really kind of at this intersection of thinking about technology, but also thinking about how this impacts people. It does seem like the DHS has taken its own initiative in upholding these standards. But in terms of accountability, the Department of Justice does have a requirement to submit a report every two years to Congress and to the president about how agencies are meeting these Section 508 requirements. But they haven't published these reports since 2012. The DOJ continues to choose not to publish these reports. How can accountability for upholding these standards be improved within these agencies? Well, one thing that we suggested in our report actually is for Congress to require the DOJ to make its reports public, to write it into the law, which would not make it a choice. It would just make it a requirement. And this is Daniel, I'll just add, I also think even though we talk about the DOJ reports, what you also want to see is more real-time information. And so there is a digital analytics program that has been set up through GSA that many agencies are part of. And this reports just common website benchmarks, you know, how many visitors, how many page views, that kind of information. But there's no reason that type of program couldn't be expanded to include other types of real-time validation through different types of testing tools, whether it's looking at, you know, things like whether a site is secure, whether it's adhering to mobile website best practices or accessibility best practices, and getting more real-time analytics on that would also be helpful for agencies to hold themselves accountable and say, here's where we currently stand. And as they make changes to their sites, ensuring they don't introduce new problems. But in terms of the recommendations outlined in the report, which ones do you think would be the most impactful for short-term change and even long-term change? I think that the website accessibility sprints that we recommend the White House put on for federal agencies would have the potential to fix a lot of the easily identifiable accessibility issues with government websites. And then in terms of long-term change, I think, and I heard again this in my conversations with with other experts in this field, that AI has incredible long-term potential for improving accessibility, not just for the government, but in general for all types of organizations that are creating websites or other digital content. This is Daniel. I'll also add that, you know, we recommend that the federal government set up what we're calling the Federal Website Accessibility Lab be similar to kind of an 18F, but instead of for design and their tech modernization, it would be focused really specifically around accessibility solutions for e-government. And it is hard to have every single agency have that expertise in-house. So we're saying, why don't we create a, a federal lab that can really focus on that? And I also agree with Ashley that a lot of this will be driven by AI in the future. And so hopefully a lab like this could help pioneer some of those solutions and get that out to agencies. You know, moving forward, how important will artificial intelligence be, not just for these agencies, but just for GSA and even the DOJ and trying to uphold these standards? This is Daniel again. One of the reasons I think AI will be so important in the future is not only that using machine vision to label images, but also just rethinking how people are actually 
accessing and you know getting this digital content from government the the trend we're seeing in this space right it's towards you know these content management systems where the web interface is just one of many channels that the information could be delivered over also mobile also apps but also maybe a, a smart speaker or something else so instead of having to navigate the website for example through clicking buttons or using your mobile some of this information will be accessible by just asking Siri, when are my taxes due or whatever the question is. And that type of integration of AI, where you're talking about chatbots, you're talking about more personalization and, and customization for individual users. That's, I think, the big future of this. But we want to make sure we don't build that future where accessibility isn't already baked into how government's thinking about delivering online services. Daniel Castro is vice president of ITIF. You also heard Ashley Johnson, ITIF policy analyst, speaking with Federal News Network's Jonathan Tercasio. Check out Jonathan's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, you think about a pandemic, for example, that has uh, placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And, and the idea that we don't have the human interaction, uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy that is a, a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions. Uh, on those on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until 
middle school being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a liberal school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream, which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to, to fight for change. And that was, that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there have been so many other moments uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, the, the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer, many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values, but the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream which we often define and think of his big I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges is seeing a forest despite the trees. It's seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give 
to feds looking to develop leadership skills. And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Shane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, uh, and, 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 and so I think that's a lesson for me, if there was some advice and counsel I could give, is to continue to do your work, but, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. Some people were made to follow the instructions. We were made to make our own, to always measure twice and never cut corners. Unless, of course, we've got a compound miter saw. Northern Tool and Equipment is a problem solver's paradise. There's nothing we can't find, fix, or figure out together. We're made for this. Start solving your projects today at northerntool.com.